Welcome back to another True Crime Tuesday episode. I'm your host, Brooke. And I'm your host, Tori. I hate the way I say that. Can, uh, I, can I toss that out there? I'm just touching cheek to cheek with you, Brooke. Attached at the nipples. We honestly should make merch saying hashtag Weaver's Most Fertile and attached to the nipple. I'm, I really considered it highly, so let us know your thoughts. So anyways, today we are talking about the Barbie and Ken murders. Now, this sounds cheerful, right? A favorite kid's toy, but this is definitely not a story you want to hear around your children. As always, we wanted to put a dis- You want me to do the voice? Disclaimer. Yeah, like Bailey Series. You want me so. to do the voice? Yeah. As always, we want to say a disclaimer that this story does contain information of sexual assault and violence. This is definitely what I would consider one of the most disturbing cases I have ever researched, and you'll see why. So, let's start off with Ken, otherwise known as Paul Bernardo. He was born in Scarborough, Canada on August 27, 1964. Paul was a good-looking kid with lots of friends. He bragged often about how easily he could pick up women. So as you can see, we already know he's kind of an asshole. So he grew up with his dad, Kenneth, and his mother, Marilyn. Even though he's called Ken like the doll, he did not live a picture-perfect life growing up. His parents had actually slept in separate rooms since he could remember and had violent fights. When he was only 11, his father, Kenneth, was charged with child molestation. It was said that he also abused his own daughter when she was just nine years old. As if Paul didn't have enough daddy problems, when he turned 16, he found out his mother had an affair and became pregnant with Paul by another man during her marriage to Kenneth. He was furious finding out he had been lied to his whole life. I mean, you hear these a lot, you know, people who found out they're adopted when they're later in life or find out, you know, things like this. And that would be really hard, especially like in your formative years as like a teenager and you're not quite emotionally mature. Not that Paul would ever be emotionally mature, but. So when he found this out, he started tormenting her alongside Kenneth, calling her names like slut and whore and telling people his dad went downstairs to sleep with the thing and hurried out as fast as he could when he was done. His friends and those close to him knew of his tendencies to be cruel and dark, but to everyone else, he was the perfect good-looking boy who was polite and did well in school. And just, we're getting into the sidebars quick, but two sidebars. One, if I ever called my mom a whore, my mom would slap me upside the face, and I would deserve it. How could you be mad at that? And second sidebar, I have never met a guy named Paul that I've liked. I mean, <laughs> I just gotta put that out there. Anyways, back to the case. Paul eventually graduated from college and would brag to his friends about wanting to start a quote-unquote virgin farm where he would breed virgins to be sexually assaulted. If my friends were saying things like this, I wouldn't just sit by and be like, oh yeah, dude, no, that sounds cool. Hell no. During this time, two women he had been dating even got restraining orders against him, saying he would degrade them in public and make obscene phone calls to them constantly. It seemed like Paul literally got off by making these women uncomfortable. It was around this time in May 1987, his dark fantasies would become a reality. He sexually assaulted two women that month. Yes, you heard that right, that month. And attempted to assault another in July. Then October came, and this is when he would meet the Barbie to his Ken. Now, let's get into Barbie, a.k.a. Carla Homolka. Carla had a very different upbringing than Paul. She was born May 4th, 1970, in Port Credit, Canada, to Dorothy and Carl. 
It was said she lived a relatively normal life with her two sisters, Tammy and Lori. Carla was described as beautiful, she did well in school, and had a deep love for animals. However, she was also often described as very bossy, someone who liked to be in control. Nobody really liked to play dolls with Carla when she was little because they said she was just so controlling. She was also very into true crime and once even told someone she wanted to draw dots on someone's body and play connect the dots with a knife. I can tell you I'm very into true crime and, you know, so is Brooke, obviously. We're doing a podcast about it. But um, I've never had any kind of sick thought of, like, anything even remotely that sick. And I can say the same. I always have been confused on when, you know, you research these crimes and they're like, oh, you know, starting from a young age, these kids had, you know, like fantasies about death or murdering. I don't know about you guys, but I am 23 years old and I still can't cope with death. I don't know how to handle it if a family member dies, even in like a normal, natural way. I'm, I am emotional. I'm a wreck. And I think that's how everyone should be. So when they say, you know, he's had a fascination with murder or with death, I'm like, yeah, um, that should have been a red flag from the get-go. Therapy. Let's, let's get your kid in it next time, yeah? Yeah, and even though she didn't have the kind of upbringing Paul did, Carla's parents were odd, to say the least. Her father, Carl, was called the pervert. And he even once showed up at one of his wife's co-worker's house when she was going through a divorce and announced his love for her, saying he was going to leave his wife for her. Later, his wife Dorothy would show up at the woman's house after he went home and told her everything. So he showed up at this girl's house, went home to his wife and said, oh, by the way, <laughs> showed up at your co-worker's house, um, told her I loved her. So Dorothy showed up at the woman's house and said to the woman, oh, my husband isn't actually in love with you. But hey, would you mind sleeping with both of us? <laughs> um, I read this and I was like, what the actual hell? Um, if you don't know by now, then you know, I would never let that fly. I'm crazy. His stuff would be on fire. I would have changed the locks. Brooke, uh, what about you? You're just going to let your man uh, show up at a coworker's house, announce his love and be like, eh, you want to have a little fun with us? All I can say is I wish a motherfucker would because Joe would be... I would be in prison. Let's start there. And Joe would either be in a wheelchair or six feet under. And I know I just got done saying, like, how do you fantasize about death? But, um, Joey, if you're listening to this and you show up at one of your coworkers' house and profess your love, I'm not going to be like, oh, hell yeah, let's have a threesome, girl. Um, no, your ass is grass. And knowing me, I'd probably hate the girl for no fucking reason. You know, it's not like this girl was like, oh, yeah, like, let's totally do it. Um, no. Short answer is no, Tori. <laughs> so I guess this gives us a little insight, but still um, not an explanation that I'm going to handle. Dorothy would tell her friends often that her husband had an extremely high sex drive. And when he went overnight on business, she felt relieved. It's not really known how much Carla knew of her dad's creepy tendencies, but I mean, I'm sure she had some knowledge. He had the nickname, the creeper and the pervert. So, I mean, I'm sure she wasn't completely ignorant to it. So that day, October 17th, 1987, the then 23-year-old Paul Bernardo would meet 17-year-old Carla Homolka in a hotel restaurant. Carla had been out all night and went back to the hotel room with her friends and they both changed into pajamas and decided that they wanted to go downstairs to eat. 
So the two girls went to the restaurant in their PJs, and when they were eating, Paul and his friends walked in. He made a joke about whether they always go to dinner in their pajamas, and the four had then started talking. After dinner, the group went up to the hotel room where Paul and Carla started having sex. And if you think that's weird because they literally had met, I don't know, 10 minutes ago and already sleeping together, their friends were sitting in the same room. After this, Paul started driving twice a week to see and visit Carla. He slowly started controlling what she ate and what she wore while at the same time calling her fat or ugly. That same December, even though he was now with Carla who enjoyed and encouraged his rough sexual behavior, he sexually assaulted another woman. At this time, he was putting fear all across Scarborough and even was called the Scarborough Rapist. There had been three sexual assaults and one attempted in just seven months. These attacks were brutal too. Paul took his time with each of the women. One even happened in front of her own parents' house. They lasted anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour, and police had set up a task force in 1988 gathering evidence of the Scarborough rapist, including DNA and even a composite sketch. By 1990, three years after the initial attacks, a few of Paul's friends actually called the police saying it looked like their friend, Paul Bernardo. It took them six months to follow up on this lead. They ended up getting saliva, blood, and hair samples from Paul that wouldn't be tested until two years later. And unfortunately, this is something we see in a lot of true crime cases is just shitty police work. I mean, six months and then two years later, I, I just can't imagine. But Carla would later claim that she didn't know he was the Scarborough rapist until after they were married. This was something that was later proven wrong, especially since one of these women claimed that when she was attacked, there was a blonde woman there who she thought might be recording. Seems like a pretty good chance to me that this woman was in fact Carla. The other indisputable fact is that one day they went to the library to look up cases of the Scarborough rapist and wrote down dates so they could come up with alibis. They even wrote down cases that weren't Paul's but might be connected so he would be in the clear no matter what. During this time, they were writing down the rapes Paul committed. Carla was making a grocery list on the same paper. Who cares if Paul was a serial rapist? Well, apparently not Carla because they got engaged on Christmas Eve 1989. And Tori, can you imagine if your husband's writing down the women he raped and you're like, okay, milk, egg, bread, butter. Oh, God, we, we can't forget the salt again. We forgot that last time. Chicken was bland. Right, and it's not even like she was just writing the grocery list while he was doing this. He was, like, coming up with her and, like, oh, what's my alibi going to be? Like, as if, you know, he hadn't just been raping these women. It's not like he was, like, taking candy from a grocery store. No, like, this was some serious shit. So, as we mentioned before, Paul had an obsession with virgins and wanted to start a virgin farm. Well, even though Carla did everything he wanted, dressing how he liked, letting him do whatever he wanted sexually to her, that was one thing she was lacking. Carla hadn't been a virgin when she met Paul, and he never let her forget it. Paul started slowly obsessing over her little sister, Tammy, who was only 15, because she was a virgin. Carla, overcome with her guilt about not giving him her own virginity, would help Paul spy on her sister, doing things like opening curtains so he could sit outside her window at night and watch her undress. Carla, who was actually working at a veterinary clinic, stole some volume and put it in her sister's spaghetti. 
so she would pass out and Paul would be able to sexually assault her. But luckily, she woke up before Paul could actually rape her. So do you think that after this, Carla thought, wow, I'm horrible. How can I let someone do this to my little sister? Or even just that, wow, that's a close one. I don't want to get caught. So let's not do that again. No, that would be a really short case. Uh, The main reason for that is because they are fucked up. Carla actually once said that it was in an opportunity to minimize risk, take control, and keep it all in the family. If you could see our faces right now, our jaws just dropped and I'm shaking my fucking head. They tried it again seven months later. They had just come home from a Christmas dinner and Carla's family all went to bed except Tammy, Paul, and Carla. It was December 23rd, 1990. Carla decided the best gift she could ever give Paul was her sister's virginity. I, I mean, I got, I got Joe some concert tickets. They drugged Tammy's drink until she ended up unconscious. This time, though, they didn't want a repeat of last time, so Carla had stolen a drug called halothane from her job, which is an animal tranquilizer, put it on a rag, and put it over Tammy's mouth to make sure she wasn't going to wake up. The couple took turns videotaping while the other sexually assaulted her. Yeah, you heard that right. Not only did Carla allow this man to assault her sister, she also assaulted her. At some point, Tammy started vomiting. The couple panicked, and by the time they had reacted, she had already choked on her own vomit and died. Carla called the police while Paul dressed her and cleaned up the crime scene. When the police came, Paul claimed that he didn't know what happened, but he tried to revive her. They left the couple to comfort each other and have a moment in an investigation. Well, actually, an entire hour while they took Tammy to the hospital. When they interviewed them later, they had the exact same story, almost as if it had been rehearsed. During the hour, they were left alone. Wow. One officer even said that he caught Carla putting bedding in the washer, but when he went to stop her, it was too late. Everything was already wet and soaked, and evidence would have been lost. So the odd thing, though, is Tammy had a large, very red chemical burn on her face from the drug-soaked rag. The concentration was so high, and it was held to her face so long that it left this mark. But Paul explained this away, saying it was a carpet burn from dragging her across the floor to put her in a position so he could do CPR. Surely, you know, a trained detective or forensic pathologist could tell the difference between a chemical burn and a carpet burn, right? Well, apparently not, because Tammy's death was ruled an accidental death, and Paul and Carla weren't questioned about it again. The morning after her daughter's death, Dorothy Homolka asked her friend Lynn to come with her and her husband to pick out a casket. Neither of them shed a single tear the entire three hours they were there. Afterwards, the Homolka said that they were going to lay down. When Lynn came back later that day, Dorothy told her that they went to lay down, but instead actually had sex, which I'm not sure how I would handle the death of my daughter just the day before, but I'm pretty fucking sure it wouldn't be that way. When they had her funeral, they tried to cover up the large red burn as best as they could, but it was still very visible. Dorothy told some people it was from excessive mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and even told others that Tammy had a bad reaction to her makeup. Paul was seen stroking Tammy's hair while she was in the casket and even placed a photo of him and Carla inside the casket. 
So, did Paul and Carla feel guilty that Carla's own 15-year-old sister had died? Well, Carla did, but not for the reason you may think. She felt guilt over the fact that the apple of Paul's eye, his obsession, his virgin, had died. Carla would dress up in Tammy's clothes and do her hair the same way she did, and they would videotape themselves role-playing, trying to give Paul the experience he was missing out on. The couple loved making videos, and some even said that they were one of the most well-documented couples in history. There are videos of Carla telling Paul she loved what he did to her sister and loves what he made her do to her. She said things like they loved little girls, and when he asked her how old, she said, 13. Paul was out of work and lived in the Homolka house at the time. She complained to friends that her family wanted Paul to move out, and they wanted them to have a smaller wedding. She even said, if it were Tammy's wedding, they wouldn't ask that. Tammy was always their favorite. Can you um, put that into even a single thought to not only take part in assaulting and killing your sister, but to sit and role play with your husband or pretending to be your dead sister? And then complaining that Tammy was always the favorite. Well, no shit. You're a fucking weirdo. <laughs> um, I'm... Oh, wait. No words. And the fact that she is saying that Tammy was the favorite and her parents literally didn't shed a tear over picking out her casket, it makes you wonder how they feel about her, their other children. Just less than a month later, on January 12, 1991, the Homoka family went out of town, leaving Carla and Paul back at their home. They went out looking for a girl, and they found one. They picked up this girl and brought her back to the house. They recorded Paul sexually assaulting this girl while Carla watched, and they did end up letting this girl go. Carla hoped that this would fulfill his fantasy long enough for him to focus on their upcoming wedding. And you know, I'm planning a wedding right now, and I'm not like, God, I hope my fiance's perverted fucking obsession is at bay. I'm like, God, I hope I you know, have enough money put away for tables and chairs, or I hope my family will get along. I hope Joe's mom and dad will get along. But I'm, I guess just we are not the same. Well, and what baffled me the entire time researching this case is, why the fuck do you want to marry this dude after this? Just why? Why would you be cool with him, you know, doing all this and having all these sick, sick fantasies? And then I remember it's because she's Carlo Homolka, and not only was she okay with it, she helped him. So the next month, the couple ended up renting this extremely nice house that had just had over $100,000 of renovations done. Paul was smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canadian border to make money, and since he was, like we said before, out of a job. They put pictures of Tammy up all over the house, including on top of their TV. Yeah. Um, after they had been living together about a month, Carla even sent Paul and his friends to Florida for spring break. She thought she would earn some brownie points. She was playing house with Paul, giving in to all of his desires, and now sending him off to a trip for two weeks. Wow, what a saint Carla must have thought she was. The first week, once he was on the trip, they picked up random girls to hook up with. Then, Paul met a girl named Allison. Allison grabbed his attention because she pleased him however he wanted sexually, but outwardly was a polite nurse who didn't have all the dark tendencies Carla did. He became very interested in seeing Allison and even went as far as to tell her his little sister Tammy had died in his arms just a few months before, and now he was living with his other sister, Carla. Yep, you heard that whole sentence correctly. 
He stayed longer on his trip so that he could meet Allison's family. He came home and told Carla everything, telling her if Allison called to tell her she was his sister. (laughs) Did Carla throw a fit about the fact that he met another woman on a trip she paid for? Of course not. Once again, I may be crazy, but I feel like I'm a little, I'm on the right page by saying I would never. I would literally never. It seems now like Carla doesn't care, right? That she wasn't bothered by the fact her man was sleeping with someone else. That's wrong, actually. She only felt happy or comfortable when she was alongside him participating in these sexual acts. So it seemed more like a game for them and less like a, I I don't know, cheating? Because it is. Somehow, if she was there, she just felt less jealous. Carla's way to keep Paul is not to communicate her concerns or anger with Paul. It was to find ways to continue to please him. When he came home, his passionate adventure with Allison wasn't enough, and neither was Carla. He went out in the early mornings of April 6th, 1991, and he saw a young 14-year-old girl jogging, and the girl saw him too. It was 5 a.m. and he was alone, so the girl sped up to see if he would follow her or maybe just get far enough away from the creepy man at least. A passing car waved at her momentarily, made her forget that she may be in danger. Immediately after this, Paul grabbed the young girl and dragged her into the woods. He sexually assaulted her and left her naked in the woods. He told her she needed to wait five minutes before she could leave, and if she didn't, he would know and kill her. Paul would actually point this girl out to Carla when they were driving one day. They saw her walking and Paul said, look, that's the girl I raped. That sent chills down my spine. Um, Carla noticed that Paul was drifting and he was back to attacking women again. She felt like she needed to pull him back in. So as we mentioned briefly earlier, Carla worked at a vet clinic. This is how she had gotten the drugs she gave Tammy. While she was working there, she met a 15-year-old girl the court documents listed as Jane Doe, so we're going to refer to her from here on out as Jane. The girl was young and sweet, and she liked Carla, and they both enjoyed animals. Carla invited Jane over to her house, telling her that her husband was out of town and they could have a fun little girl's night, and she could see the new dog they got. So Jane happily agreed and went over to spend the night at Carla's. When she got there, Carla called Paul and told him he needed to get home ASAP. When Paul got there, she told him she had found a girl that looked so much like her sister Tammy. She told him they were going to use the same drug they used on Tammy, which was the halothene, except this time she would get it right. They drugged the girl, and just like Tammy, they videotaped them both sexually assaulting the girl. When they were done, they put her to bed and pretended like nothing happened. Jane woke up the next morning not feeling well and not remembering anything. She wrote this off as to having some drinks with Carla and maybe was just starting to get the flu... This didn't earn Carla as many brownie points as she was hoping, because Paul was furious. She did that perfectly, but somehow she couldn't manage to do the same with Tammy. June 14th, 91 came, which was less than a month after this incident. Paul was doing his full-time job, which was cigarette smuggling. When on his way home, he saw 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey walking around in a neighborhood. She had gotten homely after attending her friend's wake, who had just died in a car accident. When she got home, the door was locked. Actually, Leslie had been rebelling lately, so in order to try and teach her lessons, her parents said if she wasn't home for curfew, the doors would be locked. And let me tell you, I had the same punishment in high school. If I wasn't home on time, my parents always threatened with the, 
We'll leave you a blanket and a pillow outside and you can sleep on the front porch. And I live in a, I mean, I don't live there anymore, but I lived in a very good neighborhood. But I also, I never tested it because I didn't want to. And that night they were, they were locked. She walked to a payphone and called up a friend asking if she could stay with them. The friend told her, sorry, but no. Leslie started walking back to her house when she ran into Paul Bernardo. She asked what he was doing, and he told her he was breaking into her neighbor's house. Could you imagine meeting a stranger in the middle of the night and saying, oh yeah, I was, I was just breaking in? I would be terrified, especially at 14. He offered her a cigarette and walked her back to his car. He got into the driver's seat, and she got into the passenger seat. When he pulled a knife from under his seat, and he put a shirt over her head. He took her back to his house and woke up Carla. He happily told her he brought someone home. He went downstairs, turned on his camera, and started sexually assaulting Leslie. When Carla woke up the next day, she came downstairs and discovered something. Nope, it wasn't the teenage girl tied up in her house. It was champagne glasses. She specially ordered these glasses from France for their wedding, and Paul had used it to share a drink with this random girl, as she described. And that's what made Carla mad. She spent the rest of the day reading American Psycho. A coincidence? Nope. While Paul filmed himself repeatedly abusing Leslie. He even filmed her taking a bath and using the bathroom the entire time she was blindfolded. That night, Paul ended up inviting Carla to join. Carla gave Leslie her teddy bear to hold while they took turns videotaping and sexually assaulting her. Like that was going to bring her comfort? I, I don't even know. They kept Leslie for over 24 hours. Now, there's disputing facts on how she died because Paul claims that Carla gave her too many drugs, but Carla claimed Paul strangled her with a cord. She would actually even say multiple times that she couldn't bear be around these girls when Paul was killing him. She had to leave the room. She was so, so sickened. Even though there are two different stories on how, the why is the same. They claimed it was because Leslie's blindfold slipped. When experts review the tapes later, you hear her say that her blindfold was slipping, but in the footage you see that it never slipped enough for her to actually see anything. They put her dead body in the basement near some food storage and covered her with blankets. They had the homolkos over for dinner the next day for Father's Day. The whole time, Leslie's body was just a few feet below them in the basement. When the homolkos left, they took a circular saw and cut up Leslie's body. They encased it in cement and threw it in Lake Gibson. When Carla never showed up for her friend's funeral the next day, her family reported her as a runaway, thinking since she was rebelling so much, it wasn't a surprise for her to have run away. But then two weeks passed, and they decided to change it to a missing person report. I mean, how, how would you love it yourself as a parent? Because, you know, in your head, you're just trying to you know, you want the best for your child. You're trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. So you're doing what you think is the best idea. And I mean, I, I don't want to like say they killed their daughter, but they didn't because Paul and Carla did. But in a way that I just imagine that's how they may feel. On June 29th, 1991, Carla and Paul had their wedding. Oh, they said their I do's and danced the night away. At the same time, 15 miles away, a fisherman spotted what he thought was a weird-looking fish. When he got closer to it, it looked like cement with hair. Police were called and discovered it was, in fact, a body. 
The couple took their honeymoon, and it wasn't until they arrived back home that they had heard the news of the body in the lake. They were shocked. They thought that they had done everything right to make it so Leslie was never found, but the problem was they threw the cement blocks in a part of the lake that was only three feet deep. Not as smart as they thought they were. So once they had settled in from their honeymoon, they decided to have Jane's mom over. So remember, Jane is the girl who Carla brought home for Paul since she looked just like her sister, and they successfully drugged her. So they wanted to show Jane's mom that they were great people and tried to convince her it was, it was normal for a couple in their mid-20s to hang out with a 15-year-old. It's not, but they tried their best, or so they thought. The problem was, during the dinner, Paul repeatedly talked horribly about his parents, calling him names, and obviously Jane's mom was very uncomfortable. Even though the dinner had the opposite effect on Jane's mom, she thought they weren't great people, which she wasn't far off, obviously. She knew Jane was almost 16, and there wasn't really much she can do to control her daughter. Jane continued to hang out with Paul and Carla. She eventually even started consenting to do some sexual acts, sometimes with both of them. But Jane preferred to do things with Paul alone because she felt bad for Carla. She knew she had permission, but doing these things with her husband right in front of her just felt wrong. Like we said earlier, Carla would get jealous if sometimes she wasn't involved, so one night she drugged Jane, and when she was unconscious, the couple, like always, took turns sexually assaulting her and videotaping it. But during this, Jane stopped breathing. Carla panicked and called 911 and started slapping Jane during this to try and wake her up. She told the 911 operator that her friend stopped breathing. They actually managed to wake Jane up, so Carla called the operator back and said, Whoopsie, never mind. You don't need to come out. We're all good. I don't know if it was because it was the 90s or, you know, if that's what it was like in Canada, but if you call 911 up now and say something like that, the police are definitely going to show up. It's not an Uber. You can't just cancel your call. After months of this going on, Jane confided in Carla, telling her she didn't come over for Paul. She came over to spend time with her. She considered her a friend. She told Paul she didn't want to sleep with him. Carla told her that she was stupid because Paul was the best thing to ever happen to her. He was handsome. He was this. He was that. They ignored her for the rest of the night. And that night, Carla told Jane she was mad because she wouldn't sleep with Paul. They went upstairs and didn't come back down. This was the last time Jane would ever come over. I can just see, you know, being this 15-year-old girl who meets this older girl who you, you look up to. I remember being 15 and, you know, you look up to girls that age and you're like, wow, I'm getting to hang out with this super awesome girl. I get to do all these things. And when you're 15, you know, you think you're years more mature than you actually are. And I could just see her being coerced into doing these things with Paul and then thinking it's making her friend Carla happy and she's just trying to keep the peace. She is trying to make Carla happy and be her friend but satisfy Paul. And it just breaks my heart so bad hearing her go to Carla herself and saying, you know, I'm not here for him. Like, I want to be friends with you. And Carla had the audacity to be mad at her because she didn't want to sleep with her husband. I don't get it. Make it make sense. You can't. You can't. So after this, Carla told Paul she wanted to help him with his virgin farm and would actually help him get 50 sex slaves. They were driving past high schools that were being let out for Easter weekend. This is where Carla spotted 15-year-old Kristen French. 
They pulled over and Carla got out and asked Kristen for some directions. Kristen, being the sweet girl she was, said, of course, and approached them. They pulled her into the car and Kristen actually intentionally kicked off her shoe in the parking lot that she was being abducted in, hoping someone would find it. Carla held her head down while Paul drove back to the house. Kristen was a kind girl. She made honor roll and volunteered at nursing homes. Kristen was so responsible that when her parents noticed she was late coming home, they were instantly worried. When they got home with Kristen, Paul recorded himself sexually assaulting her while, once again, Carla videotaped. When he was done, they had dinner with Kristen and they asked her about her boyfriend and her dog. Which, I, no, I'm not going to say anything. After this, Carla filmed while Paul assaulted Kristen again, saying things to her like, smile and say I love you, Paul. Gag. Kristen fought hard and was even quoted saying, there are some things worth dying for. At just 15, guys. What a strong girl. I, like, I literally just had to pause because that, that sent chills down my arm. That just, that breaks my heart. Kristen spent the next few days in their home, and Paul spoke about drugging her, but Carla knew you could find the drugs in the autopsy. They later tried saying that they had no intentions of killing her, but obviously this comment proves otherwise. Carla did Kristen's makeup, Paul filmed her like he had Leslie while she bathed and used the bathroom, and one night Carla dressed up as a schoolgirl, and Paul recorded her and Kristen together. He went to McDonald's and gave Carla a mallet to use in case she tried to escape. She let Kristen watch the news that actually had her dad begging for her to come home safe. During one of the assaults, she called Paul a bastard, something his mother would call him to insult him. Carla said that this is when he strangled her. But Paul said that Carla became angry with how much attention Paul was giving her and beat her with a mallet. Regardless of what happened, they cut off her hair and threw her dead body in a ditch. Her body was found exactly two weeks after her abduction. And I know that in a lot of cases, people try to dehumanize their victims by cutting their hair or, you know, cutting off their genitalia, things like that. And honestly, all I got to say is Kristen put up a fight that she should have never had to put up. and. You know, I hope to God that these people pay for what they did to this poor girl. And it's actually kind of weird because, you know, with Leslie, they had cut her up and put her in cement. And with Kristen, they just cut her hair and dumped her in a ditch. Two different descriptions for two different suspects because these murders were so different, which dumped uh, in a similar area. So I was actually talking to my husband about this just a couple of days ago. A lot of serial killers usually have either a specific type of victim or a specific kind of killing, things like that. And so, you know, like the Green River Killer, he focused on prostitutes. And, you know, they usually either have a specific victim or a specific or like a specific style of killing. But the only thing that these girls had in common were they were young. That was the only thing. The killings were so, so different. So, actually, over the course of the next year, Paul had tried to keep a low profile since, you know, these two girls were found and they were actively looking for their killers and the Scarborough rapist, both of which were Paul. This didn't stop him from sleeping with women loudly while Carla could hear. 
One of these people were even one of Tammy's friends who was only 17. So an interesting fact about this case is actually Carla saw a psychic because she thought that they were being haunted. She said that she would hear things, things would move, and the psychic came to their house and she said that there was a restless spirit of a woman who didn't know she had died and she was angry. And I hope that if there was a spirit there that they gave Carla and Paul hell. One day in January 1993, he took a flashlight and beat Carla so badly, the entire surrounding of her eyes were dark purple. You can actually Google these photos and they are pretty intense. So he had allegedly beat her many, many, many times during their marriage, but she filed charges this time and separated from Paul. Paul would leave her voicemails sobbing and threatening to kill himself if she didn't come home. But Carla didn't care. She began seeing multiple new men and actually just moved in with her aunt. You may remember that we mentioned the fact that it took two years before they would test DNA Paul gave. Well, they finally did that in 1993, and it clearly showed that Paul was a Scarborough rapist. They tapped his phone and began surveillance on him, hoping that they would catch him in the act. They actually called Carla in for an interview. She thought that this was about her domestic violence case, but Paul had already served his time. Well, it was only one night, so I don't even know if you could call it time. When she came in, the police questioned her about the Scarborough rapes and then Leslie and Kristen's murders. She ended the interview before too much would happen, saying that she is a victim of abuse and she never really liked him, which we all know is a fucking lie. This lady was so far up his ass, she couldn't see the light of day. She went home and confided in her aunt and uncle, and they told her to lawyer up. So Carla got that lawyer and told him the story. Well, a story. She claimed to be a battered victim. She said that she connected with these girls and never wanted any of them to die. She said Paul forced her to get married and beat her up to make her participate in these terrible acts. With this story and her attorney, she made the deal of a lifetime. They hadn't gotten any hits from their extensive surveillance that they had put Paul under. So they thought they needed Carla's statement. They told her they would give her 10 years for the two murders of Leslie and Kristen. She'd probably be out on parole in three and a half. All as long as she told the full truth and testified against Paul and didn't tell any lies. So there was actually a threat of a news outlet saying that they were going to leak the story that the police hadn't arrested a suspected serial rapist. The police gathered the same day in a full panic, and on February 17th, 1993, they arrested Paul. They searched the entire house for the videotapes, punching holes in the walls. They destroyed the house so bad that the owners, yep, the owners who put over $100,000 in renovations, forced the city to buy the house from them. So, where were the tapes? Well, they had hidden them in a ceiling in a light fixture. Paul instructed his attorney to try and retrieve the tapes. He kept them for 16 months and he was so traumatized that he ended up quitting the case. Which, I mean, if you're a normal person, how could you not be traumatized from those? So Paul got a new lawyer and his attorney actually got a lawyer because he had held on to these tapes for 16 months. So when the tapes were finally brought to light, Carla knew she had to confess to everything. She told her parents in a letter 
what she did to Tammy, well, in a way to make Carla like she was the battered victim she was claiming to be. Not only that, but the video showed them assaulting Jane, who was a victim not included in her plea deal. So instead of giving her the harshest punishment since she lied to them and broke the one of the very few agreements she had in her plea deal, nope, they cut Carla some more slack. So she was in violation of this plea deal. All they did was increase her deal two more years. So now she'd be serving 12 years for the murder of two girls assaulting her own sister and another girl. Paul was, of course, found guilty, but claimed that he never killed anyone. He fully admitted later on to sexually assaulting those girls and told the full story, but he, to this day, claims Carla was the one to kill them. It's even speculated Carla killed her own sister Tammy on purpose because she was jealous of Paul's obsession with her. So thankfully, Paul is in prison and some think he may be in there for the rest of his life, even though he has been up for parole and denied several times already. Carla, though, served her 12 years and she now lives freely with her husband and three children in Canada. Yes, you heard that right. She is walking free. A woman that killed and assaulted multiple victims got to go and have a life and you know, kids. And I feel like if you ever commit a crime towards children, you should never be able to have one because you're fucking crazy. She's not a registered sex offender and she lives a normal enough life. Her husband, who is actually the brother of her attorney, said that if people don't like Carla living in their neighborhood, they can just move. I mean, Tori, what, what do you think of that? So we got a lot of kooky characters in this. We've got a lot of really effed up people in this case. We've got, you know, Paul. We've got Paul's dad who had sexually abused his own sister. We've got, you know, Paul's mom who would call him a bastard. We've got Carla who has her obvious issues. And then her parents. Her parents who are also clearly wacko. So we didn't mention this, but her mom, before she went to jail, she threw her a going away party. They had a big pool party that lasted all day, and one of the guests, believe this, actually quoted, was quoted saying that, you know, these girls are already dead, so they don't know why Carla has to go to prison. Yeah, so not only did she throw her daughter this fancy little going away party, after she already knew that she killed Tammy, this was after that she already told her parents that she had killed their daughter, she threw her going away party and then went and decorated her cell with her. So you have so many like jaw dropping moments in this case. And it's not even like one of those cases where you have theories. There's just so many thoughts on like the fact that, you know, all of this happened. And a lot of people do buy into Carla's victim theory. And there's actually a movie on Amazon. And in this movie called Carla um, on Amazon Prime, this is not sponsored. <laughs> I mean, it could be if you want, but there's this movie called Carla on Amazon Prime and the entire movie is just her being just beaten into, into doing things to these girls and Paul just beating the crap out of her. And do I think that Paul beat the crap out of her? Obviously. Yes. I, I've seen the, the pictures of her bruises. She was definitely beaten, but it's really hard. And I think like Brooke and I, like, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, when do we draw the line between a 
you know, a battered victim and a victim of abuse because she was to a willing participant in all of this. Because I know a lot of people say that that's that's really her excuse is that she was just brainwashed by Paul and and she was this and she was that and she was just so beaten down that she she had no other choice. But honestly, I don't know if I buy it. I might have bought it if there weren't the tapes of her saying, smile, tell Paul you love him, or her dressing up as a schoolgirl along with the other girls. I mean, I would think that if you were really this severely emotionally empty abuse victim, you wouldn't be giggling and smiling and doing this, this, and that in these tapes. You would look fucking miserable. You would you know, have all these different things. And then, you know, going back to the night that, you know, that 15 year old was at her house and she was like, I don't, I don't want to sleep with Paul. You know, you're my friend. I look up to you. And she was mad at her. She was upset because she didn't get her brownie points. I mean, that in enough is just crazy to me. And I truly hope that, you know, maybe having kids has made Carla, you know, regret the things she's done. But the way her husband has talked, saying, well, if you don't like Carla living here, you can just move. No, no one should live near this psychopath. I mean, like I said, how she has kids and how she tucks her kids into bed or kisses her husband is fucking beyond me. I think if you commit any crime this heinous, you should never ever have the opportunity or the privilege to live a normal life after you took away so many young girls lives and not even the girls that they killed those girls will never be the same their dignities are gone their lives are gone I mean I just I don't know how she lives with herself it's beyond me well and not even telling Jane you know that she was that Paul was the best thing that ever happened to her she brought Jane home as a present for Paul. She gave her sister's virginity as a present to Paul. And you know, there is the biggest back and forth on this case really is, is she a victim? And how much did she really participate in? Because even in the movie, like I was talking about, they really, really laid it on thick that she was this, this victim. They show her, you know, when they go to cut up Leslie with the saw, she was told Paul, I'm not doing that. And she's fighting with him. But do I think for an instant that she didn't want to participate? No. To be honest, absolutely not. Because, and the thing I think is really interesting is Carla was caught in multiple lies saying, you know, she didn't know that he was a Scarborough rapist until they were married, which was proven wrong, saying that all of these different lies, like not even mentioning the fact about Jane or Tammy until it all came out. But Paul had been honest from the very beginning and he even you know, stuck to his story and sticks to the story and tells the parole board, which we all know if you're going to a parole board, they want you to own up to your shit. He goes to the parole board and still to this day says, I didn't kill anyone. It was all Carla, which to be honest, when we talk so much in depth about her jealousy, there's not anything in me that doubts that she killed Tammy on purpose because she was jealous. She killed Leslie on purpose because she was jealous. She killed... Kristen on purpose because she was jealous. She actually, even in one of the interviews, said she told Paul that they were going to Easter dinner at her parents' house and they needed to figure out what to do with Kristen, which she told him to take care of her, to get rid of her. So what do you, what do you mean get rid of her? Obviously, 
and her telling the comment about the autopsy, I just can't even begin to think like the whole battered victim role really, I just don't buy it. I think that she did kill all those girls and she did on purpose and especially her sister. I definitely think she killed her sister on purpose. Well, and you know, like if you're this abuse victim and you know, whatever, when she filed for separation and she left him and started dating other men, moved into her aunt's house, that was her opportunity to come to terms with herself and say, you know what, I fucked up. I did something bad. I don't want to be portrayed as the poor victim. I'm going to go ahead and turn myself into police, tell them everything. And I bet police would have maybe even given her, not that she didn't get off with a light sentence, but maybe even given her less because she turned herself and Paul in. And she didn't. She chose to date around. She chose to, you know, live her best life, whatever. She had her opportunity to be a decent person for what she did. And she chose not to. So at what point is she telling the truth and she's just trying to look like the decent person? The, well, I was abused. I was this. I was that. Girlfriend, you had a chance. You left him. You told him to fuck off after he called you. And you still didn't do anything. So I think you're full of shit. And I think she should be doing just as much time as Paul, in my opinion. So... Something I think is really interesting is they actually don't have the death penalty in Canada. Did you did you know that, Brooke? I literally found that out reading this case. I'm like, oh, Canadians, they're just so sweet. This guy actually has been up for parole. And I just, I can't even believe that. And honestly, there's actually, this is funny, but not so funny. There's actually a Facebook page that tracks Carla. And there's pictures of her at the doctor's office and at her kid's school. And they actually said that she was once working at her children's elementary school. So not only is she out walking free, living her life, having her husband be like, yeah, whatever, fuck off haters. She's going to schools, working around kids. And to me, I don't doubt for a single second that that she would have done everything all over again. I think that the only problem she had was she got caught. And even then, when she got caught, it was a slap on the wrist to say the least Yeah, it's, uh, I've looked into a lot of different true crime cases. I've, you know, I've read a lot. I've watched a lot. I'm a, you know, I'm a true crime junkie through and through, but this is definitely one of those cases that will always just leave you with that, what the actual fuck. Justice system, man, we need some fucking work. (laughs) And the thing too is like, they had a chance to make it right. Like once that tape came out and all the tapes showed Not only her being like, oh, smile, she was willingly participating in holding these girls down and happily joking with Paul. Like, once these videotapes came out and they showed more victims and showed that she was lying, that was their chance. They could have been like, nope, uh, Carly, you fucked up and the deal's void. You know, they, they had all the evidence. They had plenty of videotaped recordings of her telling what happened and what Paul did and what she did and everything else. And And even if those recordings, I'm going to try to post some of them in here. If not, you can go find them on the internet. She just says so simply, so emotionless, just, oh yeah, I I really kind of regret getting so close to the victims because it just, it just hurt so much more when they died. Like, what? She says it hurts so much more when they died, but with Kristen, we even mentioned that she, you know, Paul went to McDonald's and she was there. She could have 
said, oh, Kristen got away or, you know, she could have done anything. She could have let her go, but she didn't. So I have no doubt in my mind she was willingly doing this. And it's just, they had a chance to make it right. They really did. They had a chance to say, nope, you're getting life in prison, just like Paul, because she was, to me, equally as responsible. Maybe not as many rapes because of the ones he had before her, but she willingly participated in just as many of these. Yeah, I, I agree. I unfortunately have nothing left to say on this because this is just... So what we want to know is, how do you guys feel about Carla's sentence? Do you think it was fair? Do you think that, you know, she really was this abused, you know, abused woman? You know, who, who do you guys think killed him? Was it Carla? Was it Paul? Was it both? Was it on purpose? Was it on an accident? Tori and I, we are going to start a conversation on our Twitter page at spill the tbt and we want you guys to comment what you guys think um tell us all your theories if we miss something please drop it in there as well but i i think tori did a great job on this case and just wow you guys are gonna have to sit on this and i want to give a huge shout out to stephanie harlow she's a youtuber that's where i got a ton of my information she actually has like an almost six hour video on this if you guys want a little bit more detail. Um, we don't, and she doesn't go into how brutal these attacks were, but if you still aren't convinced that they are monsters, um, you can go read just how horribly and violently and disgustingly that they tortured these girls. And we're going to go ahead and end this week's episode. We'll see you next week.